Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This episode we have Lauren, Lucy, Justin and Jess. How do we make robots more human? How do we give them muscles to give them strength like humans, but still keep them soft? How do we make robots that are cute and cuddly? Plus, we also investigate the ethical questions being tackled right now by the UN about killer robots. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. If you've ever seen a robot move, you've probably seen it jerk around with slow or fast movements that are really precise but limited in its range of motion. That's because we're often relying on motors, either servos or direct kind motors, where we're limited in the range of motion and it feels just unnatural. So what if we came up with a smarter way of giving movement to our robots? Something similar to the muscles that we humans and animals have. And that's the approach that researchers from the National Taiwan University have taken in a recently studied in a recently published paper in the Applied Physics Letters, they outlined a brand new tactic for developing robotic muscles. So what these researchers have done is that they've taken the skin of an onion. And I know what you're saying, well, that's just going to give them a lot of tears. And, and yeah, okay, onions are weird and, and rubbery and have a layered texture. But what exactly does that have to do with robotics, let alone muscles? So they took the skin of the onion and they laid it together with gold. Now, the reason why this works is that onion has a unique cell structure, which means that it's able to be soft, but also very flexible and still retain a lot of rigidity. So the big part about it is making sure that you can design a muscle to mimic the same way that our muscles work. And that is to have something that's reasonably flexible when uh, otherwise there, but when it's contracting, still very strong. And that flex and strength is actually one of the major benefits of muscles. They can basically act like uh, just sitting there on their own, not really bothering you and can be pretty flexible at the time. But until you flex them and contract them, then they're really, really strong and, and exude their power. Now, Onion skin actually has the ability, like human muscles, to be able to bend and contract simultaneously. And this is not really possible for a lot of other polymers that are often used in artificial muscles. So basically, they take the skin, the epidermis of the onion, and they put a film layer underneath it of gold. So that film layer is where you pass current through, electric current, and that is where the response to electricity takes place, much in the same way that our muscles do. So if you pass a bit of electricity through your arm or your fingers, you may feel your muscles contract. It's in fact why, if you're testing something that you're not sure contains electricity, you should always touch it with the back of your hand and never grasp it, because that way when your muscles contract in your arm from any potential electrical shock, your arm will pull itself away rather than grabbing on, closing and tightening your muscles and not letting go. So electricity and muscles are linked and that passing of the current through it is what causes it to contract. And by attaching the gold film to the layering of the onion cell, you actually get the benefit, the flexibility and strength benefit of the onion skin 
combined with the just a, a dosing ability of the electrical current carried by the gold to actually produce these artificial mu muscles. Now, you can't just grab any old onion skin and any old gold leaf you may have lying around. It actually took a lot of layering of single lattice shells, right? Oh, so the single lattice cell of the onion skin. And then they've freeze-dried it to remove any internal water and then dipped it in sulfuric acid to make it even more rubbery and flexible. Then on top of that skin, they actually dipped two layers of gold and attached to the gold was the circuit electrode, so what they passed the current through. The end result of this onion sandwich of gold is actually a muscle that works very similar to how our muscles work. The upper portions of the skin expand when a low voltage is applied, bending the muscle downwards. But if you apply a higher voltage, the muscle contracts upwards. And they even used it to pick up a tiny ball of cotton, which is amazing when you think about it. They've already made this own similar finger-grasping mechanism close to what we have. Now, why do we care about onion skill robotics? Yeah, okay, great. They've made... Um, they've made a new type of muscle, and that's really cool in and of itself. But what's more incredible is if you start applying these techniques to the emerging world of soft robotics, which is something that's more humanoid, something that's more friendly. It's not a giant metal chassis like a transformer or a giant industrial robot that we see today. It's something more animal-like, something more human-like, and being soft and movable like that is that next big leap to making our robots cross the uncanny valley and approach something that is similar to our very own existence. So this is some fantastic work being done out of the National University of Taiwan, which has led to an innovative new way of creating muscles using onions and gold. Doesn't that just bring a tear to your eye? The UN mm -hmm. is holding a meeting right now. Right now. A conference to discuss the ethics of uh, killer robots. <laughs> like robots mm -hmm. for military purposes with limited human intervention. Yeah. Mm. So, so they're trying to like figure traffic. out what's the point at which you can't robot. Okay. Yeah. So the question is essentially, does a human need to be involved in the process of deciding to kill another human? In the mili in military applications, sometimes people will die. In the military, people will uh, people sometimes get injured. They sometimes they sometimes get killed by other people. That's a fact. And we have technology that can do that for uh, that can do that for us. It's like from a distance by via drones. But we also have the potential to create robots that could. Um, interact with and potentially destroy human lives um, independently with enough robots with enough decision making capability and enough say weaponry or at least um, weaponry that they could independently make the decision to end a life or to attack or to attempt to damage a human and the UN is trying to figure out where the line is for the legality of that sort of act of war involving robots. So to what degree does a human have to be involved in the decision-making process that leads to the death or to the death of another human 
for that to be a legal act of war as opposed to a, I guess, an illegal act of war or an immoral act. So basically, we have banned certain types of combat and weapons, for example, um, cluster, mo- cluster bombs is one type of thing to ban, landmines, those kind of stuff. We say, look, and going to be bad for everyone involved, don't do it. And so then people sign up to the treaties and say, yes, okay, we won't do the thing. What they're exploring is whether or not there's something we can do with robots <laughs> that act on their own to say, actually, don't do that. We all agree this is bad. This is not going to involve for anyone. Let's agree not want to use them. Robots who can independently choose to end lives without a human having to command that or being able to take that back, back that command and stop them. We do not want robots with independent decision-making capability and also sword arms. Yes. <laughs> Basically. And the, the part that's really interesting about this is that we have drones. They're really widely used by a lot of people at the moment for a number of different things. Some good, some bad. Uh, and that's fine. We're not getting into the decision about that. The question is more, because um, these drones are remote piloted, so someone's sitting back safely in this that's drone. That's why we use drones. That drone does a thing. And that's great. And the human's involved in that process. What's the real challenge point for that is when you have a bunch of small swarm of robots. What happens then? It's almost impossible for a human to individually have 10,000 robots. What could build them? 10,000. Yeah, or 1,000 robots just buzzing around a boat or a, um, or a car or a big jet fighter. Maybe you have a big drone and it's surrounded by a little swarm of small drones that protect it. These are all options. You we can do that. You have a human or a team of humans controlling that set of 1,000 yeah. drones. So you have to write a program that controls them. And that program has to have some capability to make decisions without human input. Yep. And there's a real interesting line about where you say, okay, human has to be involved here. Because you want, and we do use robots already, autonomously, to do a number of things. Israel has a drone that basically goes and finds enemy radar installations and then runs into them. Now, it's not targeting people. It's only targeting equipment. Um, it's just trying to damage the radar equipment. And the whole purpose of this thing is to make it safe for the planes to fly by taking out the enemy radar installation. Now, they do it on their own. There's no human involved in that equation, so they just go and make the call. Um, and that's fine. Uh, another robot that we use in the military is actually used them in Baghdad um, and a number of places in Iraq is actually send out a little robot ahead. And the soldiers love it because they can send into suspected ambushes first. So if there's an ambush, you know, that gets hit first, they don't die. <laughs> like, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> this is what we wanted to do. But the problem is, pain receptors. problem is that if you wanted to put a robot into these circumstances, you really need to get him to respond quickly. But it makes an arms race of quicker and quicker reaction times. But then the human, if the human's involved in that equation, it's always going to be slow. So what about robots fighting robots? Do you want a human involved in that decision? Do you want a human involved in a decision if it's if, if a robot without a human's decision can take an action that will save lots of human lives because it can do it much faster than a human can? And it gets into the really interesting question about where that line is for when you want robots to be autonomous and when you want them to be able to make calls to take actions like killing things. Even if that thing is another robot. Because maybe that robot's life has a value. 
Or maybe that conflict has a value that you know, we talked about with clones as well, uh, on a similar aspect. And it comes, and the reason why this is complicated is that we, one of the constraints for war, one of the reasons why we don't have war continually whenever we disagree with someone, is it costs lives, which is a good deterrent. We don't just nuke someone because they might nuke us, and that is bad because that will kill a lot of people. So we use human life as a deterrent in war. But if it's only entirely fought by robots, what's the... So staying in the world of soft robotics, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh's Swanson School of Engineering have come up with a synthetic polymer gel. Now, okay, well, what's so great about this polymer gel, I hear you ask? Well, we can actually utilise the internally generated chemical energy to undergo shape-shifting and self-sustained propulsion. So I'm going to go back and explain what this means, but... Trust me, this is incredible. So the idea behind this is to have a gel, have a robot that's made out of a gel that can change its shape. And that's incredible in of itself to imagine to have a robot that can transform, but not in the way that the big bulky transformers from the cartoons transform themselves from a car into a robot. No, no, no. This is going to be more akin to the, the Terminator 2 T2000 robot that can turn itself into liquid metal. Um, this is more something which can completely change its overall shape uh, and by morph into something else. And by doing so, it can actually give it some type of propulsion, much in the way that a worm wriggles or a, uh, a jellyfish expands and contracts to propel itself along. And how they've achieved this is by actually making a chemical reaction inside this soft polymer that actually causes the shape change but also the expansion and contraction required for movement. So they actually rely on the chemical process itself to move the shape. And that's what is really amazing, because what you're actually tying here is some very, very powerful chemistry and materials engineering back to robotics, or really any application. So what's being done? The researchers took their cues from nature. Now there's a single-celled organism called Eugelina mutabilis, which processes energy to expand and contract its shape in order to move. Now, they wanted to mimic that capability, so they looked to polymer gens containing spirobenzoprion, um, which is basically a, a material that can be morphed into different, different shapes. And by adding some light to this gel, they made a material that could undergo you know, periodic pulsations, which could be used for motion in the presence of light. So they did that research back in the 90s. But they've been working on that extensively since then. Now, what they've added to the interior of the gel is uh, it encompassed the polymer, a chemical reaction, so that when you supply more reagents, it can have then self-sustained motion. So as long as it's got something giving a bit of a push, it can then keep itself going along as long as it's got enough fuel internally to do so. So basically what they've done now is they've combined the spirobenzoprion and some other types of gels to actually pull together two different areas where we've taken ideas from nature and new, new types of polymers 
and then combine them together into an interesting new application. So basically, one half of it, the SP half of it, gets molded by the light, and then it uses the pulsating automatic motions of the gel component, the BZ gels, to actually propel it along. Now, they haven't managed to add this into robotics, but what they've done is they've actually modeled how you would build something out of this to undertake type of robotic motion. Now, of course, they still need energy, but this could take energy from light or an external source that's available in the environment very readily and then use their own internal chemical processes to basically transform that into motion. Much in the same way that a human takes oxygen, food, and occasionally a bit of light to turn into energy that we need to survive. So this is an amazing piece of new research that's been building on work previously done that could lead us to flexible, soft, cuddly, and adaptive robotics. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we found out about soft robotics mimicking cells using onions. Plus, we also found out about new morphing robots and the ethical questions being tackled about killer robots. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia. <laughs>